0: Welcome to the Reasonable Theology Podcast, where we present sound doctrine in plain language. We're here to help you better understand, articulate, and live out the fullness of the Christian faith. And now, here's your host, Clay Craby.
1: Well, thanks for joining us on this episode of the Reasonable Theology Podcast. Our guest on this episode is Dr. Jim Oreck. Dr. Oric is a professor at Boyce College In Louisville, Kentucky. He's also the author of the book Mere Calvinism, in which he sets out the basics of what Calvinism teaches. He explores each of the five points that summarize its positions. And he also addresses rebuttals and misunderstandings about what Calvinism is. So, Dr. Oreck, thank you so much for joining
0: us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me.
1: Now, before we begin talking about the book and about Calvinism, Could you maybe share a little bit about yourself, your family, your ministry,
0: and and what it is you do over at Boyce College? Well, sure. I grew up in a pastor's home, and uh, my dad was a very fine preacher. He's been in heaven for two or three years now. But I grew up hearing good preaching and good, solid doctrine. And uh, I began preaching myself when I was about 17 years old. And uh, I'm 59 now, so I've been preaching for 42 years. And have, through the years, always considered myself, first and foremost, to be a preacher and uh, ended up going to college more than I ever dreamed I possibly would have, <laughs> and uh, got uh, the opportunity to teach here at Boyce College. I began I joined the faculty here in 2002. And so uh, my wife, Carol, we've been married for nearly 32 years. Uh, we moved to louisville in 2002 with our six daughters that's right six daughters no no sons and uh, have enjoyed the opportunity hopefully to uh, shape the next generation of uh, preachers and teachers and missionaries
1: excellent thank you and you're obviously also an author as we've already mentioned you have this book mere Calvinism now this is that's the title's pretty clearly a nod to C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity, correct?
0: That is correct. And uh, that, was, that was the brainstorm of someone at the publisher. It's published by PNR Books. And uh, I, had, I had some kind of title that was not really, not nearly that good. And the editor said, well, ever since we've been talking about this manuscript, since it came in and we've been working on it, we've been calling it Mere Calvinism and uh, I just responded, that is brilliant. I think that's a brilliant title. And so some, someone at PNR came up with that, that title. Uh, but I, I fancy that uh, uh, although C.S. Lewis would not have been a five-point Calvinist, that there is much in the book that I think C.S. Lewis would have uh, been happy with and uh, perhaps would not have sued me for using the mere Calvinism title.
1: Would you say that, um, I mean, are you in particular a fan of C.S. Lewis' writings? Has he been impactful in your own writing?
0: I can't say that he's been impactful in my own writing, but uh, my Ph.D. is in English literature, and my area of alleged expertise is Reformation Renaissance literature, and that coincides with C.S. Lewis'. And so in preparation for my uh, doctoral studies back in the 1990s I read C.S. Lewis's uh, some of C.S. Lewis's secular works on literature and uh, there are a lot of people who know C.S. Lewis exclusively as a Christian writer and don't realize that he was one of the most admired literary scholars of his day taught at both Oxford and at Cambridge and uh, his uh, his literary criticism is just utterly magnificent uh, One of my colleagues was in my office just a few minutes before we commenced this interview, and uh, we both teach John Milton's Paradise Lost, and uh, uh, he and I were saying that uh, C.S. Lewis's preface to Milton's Paradise Lost is the best bit of literary criticism that either one of us has ever read. And uh, so I I do have a deep appreciation for C.S. Lewis as a thinker in both uh, the field of literature and then also in his theological writings and uh, his his fiction, his fictional writings, find him very thought provoking. And uh, when I read something by C. S. Lewis, I find myself asking, now why is it that you have not read everything that C. S. Lewis has written? Yeah,
1: yeah I've got a a list of things that I need to read from him. I've read, you know, The Hobbit with my boy and Uh, some of the other works that are more famous of his but it seems like every book is a winner and yeah you really could probably just read C.S. Lewis for a year and you wouldn't be any worse off for it.
0: Well that's right well in fact there is a devotional that is C.S. Lewis uh, uh, excerpt from C.S. Lewis writings for one year and I think it's the second best uh, daily devotional that I've ever read the first best would be William J.'s morning exercises and William J.'s evening exercises. But I so loved that year with C.S. Lewis. I'll
1: have to check that out. And uh, as we mention things, if you're a listener right now and we mention books like that, be sure to check out the show notes. We'll be sure to link to those so you don't have to grab a pen if you're driving or anything like that. Just head to the show notes. It'll be reasonabletheology.org slash episode 28. And you can find any of the resources we mentioned throughout the interview here. Now, what was it that caused you to even want to write this book? Did this uh, kind of spin out of any teaching that you were doing at the college or any of your preaching? What was the impetus for wanting to write mere Calvinism?
0: Well, I mentioned that my dad was a a very fine expositional preacher, and uh, I grew up hearing him preach about the doctrines of God's sovereign grace. Uh, And so I... Uh, I mention in the book that I was a Calvinist before I was a Christian, and uh, that's, that's just partly humorous. Uh, I, uh, part, the other part that's not humorous is that it's possible to have uh, orthodoxy regarding Christian doctrine and still not know Jesus Christ. And so, But I, may, I, I try to use that in the book to say, look, I don't think that being a Calvinist is the, the first and last thing in, uh, in the kingdom of God. I think it's possible for someone to be a Calvinist than not be a Christian because I was I was a Calvinist then not a Christian but uh, through the years as I uh, I was a pastor full-time until 2002 and uh, was blessed to be pastor of two churches I was pastor of three churches but two of the three were Calvinistic before they called me and in fact both of those churches wanted a Calvinistic pastor and so, I could talk freely about the doctrines of god 's sovereignty uh, while there and one thing that I began to discover is that even among church people who say that they are Calvinists, a lot of them do not know what Calvinism is and uh, or if they if they were if they're pressed about uh, well why where is this in the Bible, then sometimes they get squeamish and squirmy and They know that this is what our church stands for. They know that this is what our preacher preaches, but did not have uh, much confidence in understanding how that it was the thorough teaching of the scripture. And by the way, that's what I'm interested in. I'm interested in what does the Bible teach. I'm not interested in uh, being a trumpet boy for any mere man's theological system, not John Calvin or anybody else. I want to know what does the Bible teach. Well, I discovered the same, the same kind of uh, embarrassed ignorance when I came to Boyce College. And uh, there are a number of us on faculty who are Calvinists, and there are a number of students who come to Boyce and to Southern Seminary because we are uh, Calvinistic in our theology. And so I never felt like I had to be uh, quiet or dainty In my treatment of the doctrines of grace, but I found that when I talked about the doctrines of grace, the students would get extraordinarily interested, and even if they were not normally taking notes, they would suddenly start taking notes like crazy. And I came to realize these students are calling themselves Calvinists, but they really don't know what it is. And so I made it a regular part of a class that. I teach usually two or three times a year, that uh, the last couple of weeks of the semester, I would give lectures on the five points of Calvinism. And year after year, I would have students tell me, I've never heard uh, a, a careful exposition of the five points, and that is the most influential lecture of my college career. And so I had... I'd given these lectures uh, several times, and uh, then uh, about six or seven years ago I was asked to speak at a conference on the Five Points, and the uh, organizer of the conference asked that each of us speakers, and there were five of us, that each of us would submit a manuscript of our particular topic. My particular topic was Particular Redemption, and so I wrote out a manuscript, it turned out to be quite long. And uh, I thought, well, this is the beginning. This is pr- a pretty good beginning to a book on the five points. And so that's that's the history of what led up to that first chapter. And then one day there was a representative from PNR Publishers that was on campus, and I pitched the idea to him. And uh, he was he was skeptical and said, why do you think there needs to be another book on the five points of Calvinism? And I said, because the ones that are out there are impossible to understand. Hmm. And uh, he he agreed with that, and so that led to the my writing the rest of the book.
1: Very interesting. You kind of note some some similarities to, uh, it just came to mind of Spurgeon's own uh, kind of upbringing, and, and I think we might be able to put him in that category of Calvinist before you were a Christian, too, growing up, digging through those Puritan books, and, and yet... Uh, not quite yet converted as he 's trying to sort those things out, and then not holding to Calvinism because of John Calvin or because of anything else, but because as he called it it 's just a nickname for the gospel it 's what he sees in scripture and that 's what he's going to teach
0: yeah, yeah, I think you're exactly right
1: now for those that I mean not everyone 's going to be familiar necessarily when we talk about things like the five points of Calvinism, doctrines of grace. You walk readers through one by one the doctrines of grace, otherwise known as the five points of Calvinism. You give evidence for them. You answer objections to them. Could you briefly tell the listener who might not be familiar, what are the doctrines of grace?
0: Before I get into the five points, uh, I like to say Calvinism is more than just how, how people get saved. So Spurgeon was right that it's just another name for the gospel. Uh, but the five points have to do primarily with the doctrine of salvation or the doctrine of soteriology. Calvinism is, in fact, bigger than that. It, it, it's a way of looking at the world. And that way of looking at the world is uh, can be summarized by saying, God does as he pleases. And uh, almost everybody who believes in God will say, God may do as he pleases, but the Calvinistic perspective is God does do as he pleases. And no one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? Quoting Nebuchadnezzar there from the book of Daniel. And uh, so Calvinism is more than the five points. Uh, but the five points can be fairly easily remembered by the mnemonic device TULIP, TULIP where each letter stands for one of the five points. So the T stands for total depravity. and uh, uh, total depravity teaches that if God does not intervene in a person's life, that person will never come to Jesus Christ for salvation. Uh, this uh, to me the, the main uh, the most powerful statement of the Bible that teaches this is when Jesus says, "No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And so that no one can. That inability is the burden of the the T, which stands for total depravity. Since the primary issue is our inability to come to Christ, I think that the doctrine is better described as total inability, but total depravity is the most common name. I like total inability better than total depravity because... Uh, when using total depravity, you have to take a few minutes to explain. We are not saying that everyone is as bad as they possibly could be. It's possible for people to be worse than they are. Uh, the, so the total does not refer to uh, uh, you're as bad as you can be, but it refers that the influence of sin has been totally distributed throughout the whole person so that every aspect of uh of the human being has been adversely affected by sin. So adversely affected that he's unable to come to Christ unless the Father draws him. So that's the T. The U stands for unconditional election. Now I tell people if you believe the Bible, you've got to believe something about election. And uh, so there are a few people who will just say, I just don't believe election at all. I say, you can't say that. The Bible uses the word election, predestination, Like more than 50 times in the New Testament. And so you've got to believe something about it. And uh, so people who realize that will say, well, then God elects or chooses people because he sees something good in them. He sees that they are going to repent or He sees that they have faith or they're going to have faith. Uh, Maybe before the world was created, he looked down through the tunnel of time, and he saw who was going to believe, and he chose or elected those people. That is a conditional election. But I believe that the Bible teaches unconditional election, that God chooses who he chooses merely out of his good pleasure. Out of his mere good pleasure, he chooses those that are going to be saved. So it's not because of a condition It is an unconditional choosing. This means that God has to get all the glory. I didn't choose God because I'm a little bit smarter than the next guy. I chose him because he first chose me. So that's the U. And then the L stands for limited atonement. And uh, again, I criticized the T of total depravity and thought it would be better stated as total inability. Similarly, I think that limited atonement is better described as particular redemption, uh, because the emphasis is positive on what Christ did do and not negative on what he did not do. So uh, almost everybody believes in some kind of limited atonement, though. It's, It's limited at least to human beings because Christ's atonement was not offered on behalf of angels, or someone might say, well, it's just limited to believers, Uh, But we believe that uh, the Bible teaches that when Christ died, he did not die to make the salvation of all persons possible. Rather, he died to make the salvation of his elect certain. So, particular redemption has to do with the extent of the atonement. For whom did Christ die? But it also has to do with the effectiveness of the atonement. Did he actually secure the salvation of those for whom he died? Uh, So that's the L in the TULIP mnemonic. And then I stands for irresistible grace, which I think is better described as effectual calling. Irresistible grace kind of carries with it the misunderstanding that God forces people to come who are resisting him. But the beautiful teaching of effectual calling is that uh, God, by His Spirit, convinces us of our sin and our misery. He enlightens our minds in the knowledge of Christ. And then He does this supernatural work of drawing that Jesus talked about when He says, no one can come unless the Father who sent me draws him. The Holy Spirit, the Father draws using the Holy Spirit and makes us willing uh, to come to Jesus Christ as He's offered to us in the Gospel. So that's the I, the irresistible grace. And then finally, the P stands for the perseverance of the saints. And that uh, just means that uh, those whom God elects and for whom Christ has died and those whom the Holy Spirit calls will continue to be followers of Jesus Christ until they are in heaven. And so no one who... Has been saved by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ will be punished for his sin. Uh, they uh, those sins have been taken care of in the atonement that Christ offered on their behalf, and uh, and so that person is secure forever. The Lord uh, uh, keeps us keeps us saved. He preserves us. But then, part of His preserving work is that He makes us eager to persevere. In the, uh, in the salvation to which he has called us. So that's a, a brief summary of the five points.
1: Thank you. Very helpful. So we've got our mnemonic device, TULIP, T, total depravity, or as you put it, total inability. We've got U, unconditional election, L for limited atonement, which you prefer as particular redemption, I, irresistible grace or effectual calling, and P, Perseverance of the Saints. So those, when someone's talking about the five points of Calvinism or the doctrines of grace, these are the doctrines they are referring to. Which of these gets the most pushback? Uh, I mean, some of these, I think, uh, aren't all that controversial, and then some, I think, are, depending on what people's theological views are. Are there one or two of these doctrines that are particularly um Pushed back against by non-Calvinists?
0: Yes, I, I would say that the uh, the L or limited atonement is the one that is uh, most often protested against. That's that's the doctrine that I think that most people who have never heard of it are uh, repulsed when they hear it, uh, especially if they have grown up in church hearing that. Uh, God loves everyone just the same, and Jesus died for everybody, and uh, now it's entirely up to you to make a decision to, uh, to get saved. And so, really, the whole, the whole system is repugnant to the natural man. N- no natural man wants to hear that he is unable to do anything, and uh, so th- the whole system seems unfair to the natural man. But I would say that it's probably the doctrine of particular redemption that is uh, most objectionable to, uh, especially people who have grown up in church and have heard something else. And I understand that uh, it's just, uh, a, a, it sounds heretical after you have heard your whole life that Jesus is doing everything that he can to save everybody and it's all up to you, and then now to hear. No, it's not all up to you, the sinner. It's up to God. And, uh, and so I, w- I would say that that's, that's the most objectionable doctrine.
1: Well, I know in my own story, having been exposed to uh, Calvinism, Reformed theology, whatever you want to call it, I mean, after my conversion, I wasn't a Calvinist before I was a Christian, that was what stuck out to me. Is like I That doesn't sound right from what I've heard, what I've been taught, what I've believed. And it was kind of this process of, yeah, I don't, I don't agree. That's true. To pointing out, to getting to a point where I couldn't deny it, to getting to a point where I wouldn't want to, because of all of the effects that that has on the broader, you know, theological system, and how important that is for understanding how God saves His people. Yeah,
0: I uh, and what, one of the main objections that people have about uh, the doctrine of particular redemption is how do you now do evangelism? How how do you do mission work? If because uh, many of us were trained in evangelistic methodologies that have us saying Jesus died for you, and they say, well, if we can't say that to someone, just uh, if we don't know, and uh, the answer is that's right. You 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 don't you, you can't say that to everyone. Jesus died for you, and you must receive him in order to be saved. But here's the good news, and this comes as a shock to many people. In fact, I'll, I'll tell you uh, how I sometimes do it in my classes. I'll say to the class, now you, you, write da- you tell me every verse in the Bible that says, if you will just believe that Jesus died for your sins, then you will be saved. Now you tell me and I'll write it down on the board. Now I turn around on the board like I'm going to write it down, but I know There's not one single verse in the Bible that says, if you believe that Jesus died for you, then you'll be saved. And so then I make the point, in order for us to do biblical evangelism, it is not necessary for us to tell people Jesus died for you because there's not one single place in the Bible where an evangelistic appeal is made on that assertion. And so I say... This is not just about the extent of the atonement. Even if you believe in a universal atonement, you still should adopt biblical methods of, of evangelism and stop saying things that the Bible does not say.
1: If you enjoy the sermons and written works of C.H. Spurgeon, I encourage you to check out the all new chspurgeon.com. Here you'll find free, unabridged sermon audio delivered with the dynamic of live preaching, articles written by and about the Prince of Preachers, a chronological bibliography of all his books, and much more. This will be a growing library of Spurgeon-related resources to help you in your walk with the Lord. So check it out at chspurgeon.com. And in those that are worried about, you know, the evangelistic impact, and that's that's been a historical concern in the church. These conversations have gone on lots, particularly in the American church. But um, I, pointing people to folks like William Carey, the father of modern missions, people like George Whitfield, people again like Spurgeon. These people were fueled by their... Calvinism, to evangelize, not hindered by it.
0: That's right, and when properly understood, understanding the doctrines of grace is not a deterrent to evangelism and missions, it's an incentive, it's an encouragement. I give the example in the book of uh, hunting, turkey hunting, and how that sometimes I go turkey hunting in an area, and every time I go turkey hunting, I don't kill a turkey. Most of the time, I don't. Well, how come I keep going back to that place? because I know that there are turkeys there I've heard them I've seen their tracks I have found their feathers and other indications that turkeys are in the area that encourages me to keep going even when success is not immediate and the same principle applies to understanding that God has scattered his sheep throughout the world and if I am faithful to do what the Lord has called me to do then he is going to use me or use some other preacher to call those sheep to himself because he has planned in advance for the success of the gospel. I think it's important,
1: and I've had conversations with, in my context of ministry here, with people that are uncomfortable with limited atonement, and I think it helps sometimes to point out that everyone limits the atonement in their system of thinking somehow. Unless you're a universalist and think everybody goes to heaven, which at that point you're probably not interested in biblical arguments anyways, but those who are interested in being biblically faithful, either you're limiting the atonement in its effectiveness and you're saying Jesus died for everyone equally, but it didn't quite pan out that way and there are now people in hell for whom Jesus died for their sins, or you limit the intent of the atonement and you're saying, as you did earlier, that Jesus' death made
0: salvation certain for the elect. Yeah, yeah. C.H. Spurgeon uh, said that uh, the, the those who believe in a universal atonement have a very wide bridge, but it only reaches halfway across the chasm. Hmm. Whereas those of us who believe in limited atonement have a narrow bridge, but it reaches all the way from sinful man to reconciliation with God.
1: Oh, that's very good. And, and of course, that's not to say that someone who doesn't hold to limited atonement, isn't truly a Christian. I think this is one of those doctrines that you may not yet have arrived at, and I don't think that uh, that gives us you know, cause to doubt someone's salvation. I think it's something that you, as you are become better acquainted with, with Scripture, you start to realize and start to see how it was that God saved you looking
0: back. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Salvation is not in believing the right doctrine, although doc, right doctrine is important. Salvation is in receiving the right person. Now, this this person, Jesus Christ, is someone that we know because of things that are taught about him and teaching his, his doctrine. So you must believe some doctrine in order to receive Jesus. But uh, it's astounding how ignorant we can be and still put our faith in in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you mentioned
1: uh, the pushback on limited atonement. We mentioned briefly about kind of some fears, some critiques about, hey, this is going to negatively impact a heart of evangelism. Are there other misconceptions about Calvinism and Calvinists that are out there, and and how do you address those in the book?
0: Well, yeah, let me just hit a little bit harder on uh, the fear that Calvinism Kills Missions and Evangelism, because I think that's by far the most common one. And uh, since I have the opportunity to talk to uh, young people who sometimes will be interviewed for uh, ministry positions, I tell them, if someone asks you, are you a Calvinist, don't say yes or don't say no. Say, I'm not sure what you're asking me could you ask me what you want to know without using the word Calvinist? And uh, I would say that uh, fairly often uh, the person who has asked the question really won't know what he's talking about. But uh, when, not several years ago, I had someone ask me, I was in, had just commenced an interim pastorate somewhere, and he said to me, well, in two sentences, what is Calvinism? And uh, This guy that I was talking to was a farmer, and uh, so I just very simply tried to put it in layman's terms. Well, in two sentences, uh, God always does as he pleases. And the second sentence, God initiates and completes the salvation of everyone who goes to heaven. But he was still looking at me with a puzzled look on his face, and I said, but probably what you want to know is do Calvinists believe in missions and evangelism? And the answer is Yes and a big smile spread across his face. End of discussion. That was what he wanted to know. I would say that is, uh, that's that's the most common concern of people who really love the Lord and love the Bible when they hear this is, wow, how can you even be evangelistic when you believe that God has already planned in advance who's going to be saved?
1: I think one aspect going right along with that is you think of instead of just evangelism in general, missions in general, if you you get down to the individual, is it more daunting to believe that the conversion of the person you're speaking with depends on how wonderfully you present Jesus Christ to them? Or is it more comforting to think that God is in charge of salvation and I only have to be faithful in sharing the gospel? And I think that can really release people of all this fear and trepidation they have of saying, Hey, that's not my job and I can't screw this up. If God wants to save this person, I'm not going to mess that up. So I might as well go out and share the
0: good news. You are so right that 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 it can, it has the potential to be so freeing. And it, it astounds me what kind of surprising comments that God sometimes uses to bring people, if not to Christ, at least on a search for the Lord. And sometimes it's just a, a, a comment that someone makes and you know God is sovereign in this. So I think you're right that it has, it has the potential to be emboldening for us to be more faithful in sharing the gospel.
1: Mm. Now, you don't ignore the fact that Calvinists have uh, an unfortunately, sometimes well-earned reputation for being overbearing. Uh, we actually had an opportunity to have a conversation uh, with another author on his book, uh, Humble Calvinism. That's episode 23 if people want to check that out. But it is a reality that Calvinism has sometimes gotten a black eye because of Calvinists. And you, you speak to that in the book. What advice would you give for the person who's maybe really passionate about informing people about these true biblical doctrines that they see, but maybe also has a tendency to be overbearing in that.
0: Well, just remember that uh, you yourself, my argumentative brother, you yourself would not understand these doctrines if God had not revealed it to you. Mm. And so, know that uh, the anger of man does not accomplish God's righteous purposes. Remain calm. Uh, uh, God is able to defend Himself. You don't have to defend God and defend uh, a lion. Uh, speak the truth calmly. Speak the truth in love. If the situation becomes so emotional that it is unlikely that uh, anybody is going to do anything but win an argument, then it may be best for you to be the uh, the adult in the room and uh, and and lose the argument for the sake of being a winsome and loving Christian. So, I would say be gentle, uh, be patient, uh, to borrow, I mentioned William J. earlier, so to borrow something from William J. The medicine is already bitter enough, don't make it worse by making it boiling hot.
1: Yeah, that is helpful, and and so much of it just keeping humility about ourselves. Uh, The antidote to pride should be right here in the five points. Uh, I was completely unable and unwilling to come to Christ, and it was all God. Really not a lot of room for pride there.
0: (laughs) You're exactly right.
1: Now, it sounds like the book is particularly geared to those who maybe are Calvinists, or at least familiar with the term and not completely against it, to get a better understanding of what Calvinism is, what it teaches. If someone were to pick up your book that was decidedly not a Calvinist, what would you hope they take away from it?
0: Well, I hope that they would say, this guy is not being mean. He He is treating my objections fairly. And uh, he is trying to establish what he is trying to say from the Bible. And uh, I I would hope that they would see he is really trying hard to be biblical about all of this.
1: Well, that's excellent. Again, the book is called Mere Calvinism. Our guest has been Dr. Jim Orrick. Where could people go to learn more about you, your ministry, and also pick up a copy of this book?
0: well i'm the pastor at the bullet lick baptist church and so you can hear the, the last year's worth of sermons on bullet b-u-l-l-i-t-t lick Bulletlickbaptist.org. so if you wanted to hear uh, preaching you could go there there are also sermons that are posted on the internet where i've preached at seminary chapel and some other places uh, the book is available at major retail outlets it's uh, Amazon, uh, Barnes & Noble, Christian book. A few days ago, I was looking at Reformation Heritage books, and they've got the book for $8, which is half price. So that's a really great really great price. It's the best price that I know of. In fact, that's the author's price. If I order a case, <laughs> that's what I get them for, $8. So maybe eight. you
1: don't want people to use that link. I'm not sure if you're getting paid at that point.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I wonder, but... Uh, I, you know, I always admired what Lorraine Bettner would put in the front of his books, that he, his purpose was not to restrict the distribution of his books. He wanted people to have access to them. And so I want people to have access to the truth of God's Word. And, uh, and so I, I want them to be able to, to get the book at an, as affordable a price as possible. But uh, you, you can find it at, at, at those various places that I've mentioned.
1: Amen. Well, we will be sure to link to all of those things that you just mentioned, as well as the other resources we covered in this episode. Again, you can find the show notes at reasonabletheology.org slash episode 28. Dr. Oric, thank you so much for joining us.
0: You're welcome, Clay. Thank you so much for asking me to do this interview. Thanks for listening to the Reasonable Theology Podcast. Be sure to visit reasonabletheology.org for more helpful resources on understanding, articulating, and living out the Christian faith. In addition to the show notes for this episode, you'll find articles, videos, book reviews, and much more. That's reasonabletheology.org.
1: Thanks again for listening. If you enjoy the Reasonable Theology podcast, go to reasonabletheology.org slash subscribe and get the weekly email. Each week I send out the latest article or podcast episode and each email also includes a helpful definition to expand your theological vocabulary, a beautiful painting to pick in a scene from scripture or church history, a musical selection to enrich your day, as well as the best book deal I have found that week to add trusted resources to your library. Try it out at reasonabletheology.org slash subscribe.